Guys, we are um, in Acts 12, and I just want to give a quick review uh, for guys who may not have been here, or even for those who have but may have forgotten that Luke's purpose in writing the Acts of the Apostles is to accurately document God's plan executed by the Holy Spirit through Jesus and the continued work through His disciples. The primary message of Acts is that Jesus is the King, the Savior of the world, and the theme of all the preaching that you see in Acts is the risen Christ, the resurrected Jesus. And Luke divides Acts really up into six sections. And each section kind of ends with the phrase, either the church multiplied or the word increased. You'll see that at the end of the sections. And you'll see it even at the end of chapter 12 today as we finish phase two. Remember phase one. In phase one, it was Jerusalem, right? Phase two, Judea, Samaria. Phase three is what? The ends of the earth. And so you're going to see that as we go through, um, go through this. Acts 1 is where he replaced Judas. Remember Judas um, uh, hung himself. And so it left only 11 apostles and they replaced him. Why? 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles. They replaced him with a guy named Matthias. And then in Acts chapter... Well, I'll go back to one real quick. Jesus said in Acts 1, 8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. He gave them a strategy for how the gospel would be spread. And so it's going to start in Jerusalem. And he said, wait in Jerusalem until you're filled with power from the Holy Spirit. And that's what they did. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came down. And remember, on the day that Peter preached, when the Spirit came down, 3,000 people came to faith. They baptized 3,000 believers that day into new life. Now the significance of that is in the Old Testament back when the, uh, the Ten Commandments were given and they made idols. Remember they made the idols? 3,000 people died that day. 3,000 people died. And Paul picked up on that when he wrote and he said the law brings death but the Spirit gives life. When the law came, 3,000 people died. When the Spirit came, 3,000 people got new life. And so there was a significance of that being put in Acts chapter 2. Well, in Acts chapter 3, God begins to authenticate His Word in His disciples as they were doing signs. Peter and John healed a guy, and then they start preaching. And what happens? The Jewish leaders get upset. They end up arresting them, telling them they have to stop. They say, we can't stop preaching. We have to. This is what we've been commanded to do. And so they continue preaching. And what happens? They get arrested again. When they get arrested the second time, there's a guy named Gamaliel who warns the leaders. He says, listen, you better be careful. If this is from man, it's going to die down. But if it's from God, you're going to find yourself fighting against God. He convinces the leaders, because of the sovereignty of God, to let them go. They beat Him first, and it says the disciples counted themselves worthy to receive a beating for Jesus. Amen. And so that was Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 6, we see, well, also we had the first sin in the church, Ananias and Sapphira, remember? It, was, it wasn't that they didn't bring the money. It was they lied and wanted people to believe they were more spiritual than they were. 
And God said, no, this is the birth of the church. We can't have that. So he made an example out of them. And then what happens is the church ends up realizing that they're overlooking the Hellenistic Jewish widows. All these people had come from outside of Jerusalem. They had heard the gospel. They had nowhere to go in their own country. So they were staying in Jerusalem, but they didn't have food. They didn't have an ability to, to live every day and get taught the word. And so the, the, the people who were Hellenistic, who were believers, were going, wait a minute. We have widows, guys. Remember the Old Testament. God says widows should be taken care of. Our widows are being overlooked. And so the apostle says, we can't wait on tables. I mean, we've got to be committed to the Word and to prayer. And so they select seven men, all Hellenistic, and the two most prominent are Philip and Stephen. And then that's where we're introduced to Stephen and Philip, both men of faith and men who are godly men. And then in chapter 7, we hear this great sermon by Stephen it's an it's incredible presentation because they brought up false charges against him. He's martyred. He's the first martyr after Jesus. And there was a guy there taking the clothes from people and watching over them named Saul who then began this terrorizing of all the believers. And it drove all the believers from outside of Jerusalem except for the apostles. They stayed. And we see Philip on the scene going to uh, Samaria he goes to Samaria, preaches. The Samaritans start coming to Christ. That's a big deal because they're like half-breeds. They're not really fully Jewish. They had intermarried with uh, Assyrians and Babylonians. And so they were kind of like in between. They were high, you know, half-breed Jews. And so they were very looked down upon. They hated them. And God's saying, no, these are people too. I have people in Samaria. But there was a false convert in Samaria. Remember his name? Simon the Magician. And so Peter comes up there, even though Simon said, I want to follow Jesus, Simon said he believed. He was even baptized. But Peter gets up there and goes, nah, he's not the real deal. He's a poser. And unfortunately, there's a lot of posers in the United States. There's a lot of posers in the world. They want to use Jesus, but they don't really follow Jesus. And, and so he dealt with that and he called him out on that. And then in Acts chapter 9, we see the conversion of Saul. Saul then is converted. He becomes the great ambassador to the Gentiles. Chapter 10, we see uh, Peter and Cornelius. Peter and the story of Cornelius is told three times in a row. In Act, twice in Acts 10, once in Acts 11. Because God wants us to understand that it's one church. It's not the church of the Jews and not the church of the Gentiles. There's one church. And that's what he wanted people to know. And so he retold that story. This was a big deal because you've got to remember for thousands of years, every person that followed the one true living God had one command, really. They had more, but one that they had to have that showed they were part of the covenant as they had to be circumcised. If they weren't circumcised, then they weren't part of God's family, His community. And for thousands of years, it was that way. And so now, that's not the mark anymore. What's the mark of God's new family? It's, it's really the same. It's just manifested different. Now, it's the same mark. It was a trick question. All right, I was trying to get something. Nobody bit on it. Nobody said it. The same mark. It's faith. 
In the Old Testament, the reason they circumcised themselves was faith. In the New Testament, the reason you confess Jesus is faith. Because in the New Testament, to confess Jesus meant you could be killed. It meant that you could be persecuted. It meant you would be ostracized. It's the same way as it is in India, the same way as it is in China, the same way as it is in the Middle East and Nepal and other countries that persecute. And the whole thing that we're dealing with today is when Satan has always tried to influence leaders to be at war against Christians. He has throughout time. Stalin, Mao Zedong, all these leaders throughout history have persecuted Christians and they've been under the influence of Satan. And, and you know, we've been very protected in America. Very protected. But did you know on January 8th in Canada they passed a law that says that if you preach biblical marriage, you can be arrested. If you preach biblical male and female design, you can be arrested and get up to five years in prison. Did you know that? January 8th, that law was passed. They've already arrested some people up there for preaching about uh, God-designed marriage and God-designed male and femaleness in Canada. And so, it's coming here. Ultimately, what it is, guys, is a war against God. It's not just God's people thereafter. It's, and, and they may get temporary little victories, but they're not going to win the war. They haven't won the war. God is ultimately going to be the one who wins. It's been going on from the beginning of time. You always see a contrast between God's people and Satan's people, right? And if you look throughout Scripture, I just jotted down some. It starts with Cain and Abel. Cain represented the influence of Satan. God warned him. He said, listen. He said, sin's crouching at your door. Be careful. Don't, don't let it rule over you. And, and so God warned him before he did what he did. And then what did he do? He went and killed Abel. He murdered. Who's the father of all murderers? Yeah. He's the father of all lies. He started in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say this? You don't have to believe that. He just doesn't want you to do this. Or He doesn't want you to get this. It started with Cain and Abel. Then it, it, it progressed on to Noah in the world. Think about Noah. For 120 years, Noah preached. You know what he preached? Repentance. Do you think they like that? No. Do you think he was popular with the people? Building a big boat, telling everybody they're going to die, the world's going to be consumed with a flood, telling them they need to turn from their wicked ways. It's like people today trying to tell people, listen, you need to repent, you need to repent, you need to repent. And they're all, I don't believe that stuff. If that was going to happen, it would already happen. Think about the people. That guy's been preaching for 100 years. He's been saying that for 100 years, how they write him off. How ostracized he must have felt. But then when the raindrop started and the door shut, those people were wishing they would have listened. What about Abraham? Think of all the, all the people that Abraham had to encounter. That those kings that had kidnapped his son Lot, or his nephew Lot. And he went up against them and, and he watched Sodom 
And the world was influencing his family. Because Lot, if you go back and you read about Abraham and Lot, it says that Lot saw the fertileness of of the valley, the Jordan Valley, and it reminded him of the garden. It reminded him of Egypt. Egypt was always symbolic of sin. So he chose that. And he goes down there. And then here's what's crazy. Abraham's over here praying for Lot, right? He's praying and interceding because he's a good uncle. And he's interceding for Lot and he meets the three visitors. Remember that? He meets the three visitors. Abraham runs to greet him. Fixes him food and all this. And they tell him what's going to happen and all this stuff. And should we tell him we're going to destroy you? Oh yeah, we're going to tell him. So they tell him. And that's when he gets in there. What if there's 50 good people? What if there's 40? What if there's 30? What if there's 20? What if there's 10? I'll not destroy it for 10, but there wasn't 10. Because God destroyed it. But even as he's destroying it, he sends an angel. The angels go to Lot's house. You know the story, right? You go down there, the angels go into Lot's house and they're saying, we're going to sleep out here. No, no, come in here, come in here. The men come to the house. They want to rape them. The men want to homosexually rape the angels. And Lot says, no, take my daughters. They, they haven't been with a man. Take them. But don't do that to these men. That's, that's wicked. Lot recognized there was something about these men too. But then the men caused blindness to be on the people that were trying to get into the door. And he pulled Lot in. And they said, listen, you got to leave. We're going to destroy this city. And then you know what struck me about what Lot said? It said he hesitated. He hesitated. Now listen, I'm going to tell you, if I'm standing in my doorway and some guy just struck a bunch of people blind and then said, okay, I'm going to destroy the city, I'm going to be listening to what the guy says. Because you have the Holy Spirit, Doug. Yeah. That's a difference. I mean, even people who are saved sometimes say, well, I just think, you know, why is God doing this to me in my life? What they don't realize is God's trying to get you to a point you realize just how much you need Him. We always hesitate towards the world side. But here's the thing about Lotto. So the angels tell him he's going to destroy it, and he hesitates. And they basically drag him and say, come on, you got to go. And they say, listen, you need to go up to the hills. This is what the angels tell him. And you know what he says? I don't want to go there. I want to go to Zoar. I want to go to Zoar. But guess what happens when Lot looks back when he's in Zoar and he sees fire and sulfur coming down and consuming Sodom. He goes, we need to get up to the hills. Have you ever noticed that in Scripture? Go read that story. That's exactly what happens. Now listen, if you only read that portion of Scripture that talked about that with Lot, you would think Lot wasn't a believer. He wasn't one of God's chosen. But over in 2 Peter, it says that Lot was a righteous man. It said that he was a righteous man. He was God's man. He didn't make good choices. There's hope for us in that. And that we, we make a lot of bad choices, but it said that God saved him because of who's, who, who was interceding. Go back and read it. It's Abraham. It's because of Abraham. But you see, that's just another one. Jacob and Esau. Jacob I've loved. Esau I've hated. Esau lived for the world. He didn't live for God. And Jacob, although not perfect, none of these men are perfect, but he... He lived for God. He was was God's man. Moses and Pharaoh. 
I mean, again, Moses was a murderer. Moses was a guy who said, God, I can't do this. And God said, no, you will do it. You can do it. Didn't I make the ones who stutter? Didn't I make the deaf? Didn't I make the blind? I can use anything I want to, Moses. And Moses stood up against one of the most powerful leaders in the world because of the power of God, not because of... And you remember what the, the wise men from Pharaoh said about when they finally couldn't emulate Moses' miracles? They were trying. You know, the first couple they were able to imitate. But then they said, surely this is what? The finger of God. They recognized it was God's power. It wasn't Moses. It was God's power. What about Balak and Israel? Balak wanted Israel to be cursed. He was their enemy. So he called Balaam, this prophet, and said, would you curse them? And Balaam said, I can only do what God lets me do. And he could never curse them. He kept calling blessings down on them. Because who controlled Balaam? God did. God was ultimately in control and He would not let him. So much so that Balaam was stuck between a rock and, a, and his donkey. His donkey pinned him against him and he's mad. And the donkey spoke. Probably the only time that you'll ever hear a donkey speak in the world maybe was he spoke to Balaam and says, man, how long have I been, been your donkey? Have I ever done anything like this? There's an angel up there going to kill us both. I mean, like we read those stories and we, we blow over them and realize God is sovereign over all this stuff. But His people have been persecuted and been at war against the world since the beginning of time. It's this Satan influencing worldly leaders trying to hurt Christians and ultimately hurt God's people and hurt God. The northern kings and the southern kings of Israel. Think about that. There's... Um, 1 Kings 14.7 talks about Jeroboam. Now, here's what was interesting. To be a king over Israel, what did you need to show? What did you have to have to be a king over Israel? Descendant of David. Yeah, you had to be from the line of David, right? But Jeroboam wasn't. Jeroboam was the servant of Solomon. But God had told Jeroboam, you're going to be king. Why? Because Solomon started going about this. What did Solomon? What did God say to Solomon about reigning? He said, if you obey my commandments, you do these things, then you're going to stay in control and your descendants will reign on the throne. But he didn't do that, did he? He married foreign wives. He ended up worshiping at high places that not to God. And so God took Jeroboam, and listen to what it says in 1 Kings 14.7. Before, Go tell Jeroboam, and and God is rebuking him at this point. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel. Who put Jeroboam in power? It was God. It wasn't Jeroboam's prowess. It wasn't uh, a stolen election. So if you have a problem who's at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, you got to take that up with God. It wasn't voting machines gone crazy. It, it wasn't a stolen election because you can't steal from God. You can't steal from God. He puts leaders in control. Right. Now, that doesn't mean we're always going to like 
who He puts up there. And we're not going to always agree with what they say. But God puts leaders on the throne. And a lot of times, He puts leaders that are evil or that don't like His people because it's a judgment against His people. Because they've turned their backs on Him. And that's what He did with, with Jeroboam. And He come down on Jeroboam. Every king in Israel was evil. Everyone after Solomon. If you go back and you read, and He did evil in the sight of the Lord. Evil. And you can just go through the laundry list of all of them. But in the southern kingdom, there were good kings because they kept their eyes on the Lord. Not perfect again, but they kept their eyes on the Lord. And so, when you look at this war that's been going on, what we see in Herod is he launches a war against God's people. He kills James and thinks that because he kills James... And it went so well. The people, the Jews, liked it so much. He thought he could get more favor. He said, I'm going to go kill the leader. I'm going to bring Peter in. But he had a little problem. The problem was it was Passover. And he didn't want what he was about to do to get pushed to the back of people's minds. He wanted it to be this high drama thing where when he killed Peter, everybody knew it was him doing it. And he was going to win the favor of the Jews. He already had the favor of the Romans. And it was going to increase his power base. That's what he wanted. And so he throws him in prison. So that's where, this, that's where we end up right here. This is basically, this chapter finishes the second phase of the church's witness to Judea and to um, Samaria. When you look at Acts 12, what I want you to see, we're going to really, today we're just going to focus on the first one that God calls us to trust that His power is uncontested. Amen. What does that mean for you and me? That His power is uncontested. Do we really believe that? If we believe that, then that's going to impact the way we live our life around other people. Because we can say we believe it, we can want to believe it. But if we don't really believe it at the core of who we are, then the way we live our lives is going to reflect that we don't believe His power is uncontested. We believe that something can thwart God's plan. Something can is stronger than God is. Even though we say it. Even though we say we believe it. That's the first principle. The second one is that God, his, God's people are secure in His care. His people are secure in His care. That doesn't mean you're going to get everything you want. That doesn't mean you'll never have pain in your life. But it means that you can know you are secure in His care. And that we see that in Peter. And then third, His plans are unstoppable. His plans are just unstoppable. God, you, you can try. You can fight against Him all you want. And that's what we see here. Luke lays out. It starts with Herod killing James. It ends with Herod dying. And that's ultimately what happens to the bad people who are evil, who are pawns of Satan. They may start off thinking they're powerful and have a temporary victory, but even what he did for James wasn't a victory. James willingly went to his death, laid his life down as a martyr. And he got ushered into the presence of Christ that day. The day he died. 
And so we're going to look at these three truths today and next week. But first, we're going to really focus on God's power is uncontested. And we should trust Him. We should trust Him because of all these principles. That His power is uncontested. That His care for us is, is our security. And that finally, His plans are unstoppable. That should give us great comfort and hope. So let's read the text and we're going to come back and look at this first one. Chapter 12, verse 1. About that time, what time? See, anytime you read something like that, you gotta gotta go back and figure out what is he talking about. Well, what did he just talked about in the paragraph before? In these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. That's that time when the famine was going on. Claudius was reigning. That's when Herod was in charge. And by the way, this is Herod Agrippa, the grandson of Herod the Great. Okay? So about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. He thought he was doing another sheet come down kind of thing, you know, where he had that vision with Cornelius. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. Now when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent His angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and they were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, She did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. Because the Jewish people believed when you die that you would get an angel, basically. And and an angel, uh, like you could come back, would come back in your form. It was like your angel would look like you just to comfort people. That's what they believed. And that's why they said it's his angel. But Peter 
continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed, and he went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and he ordered that they should be put to death. That's how evil he was. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and he spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon and they came to him with one accord and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting the voice of a God and not a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. May God bless his word. Amen. In verses 1 through 11, you see Herod start to attack the church. Proverbs 21:30 says, No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. Nothing. I mean, the Lord, you can't overtake him. His power is uncontested. Herod thought he was powerful. His grandfather, Herod the Great, was one of the greatest architects of the time. For you people who've been to Israel with me, you've walked through Herod's accomplishments. You've seen Caesarea that he built to Caesar. It was unbelievable what he built there. The um, Herodium, how he built that back then and what he did. He leveled half a mountain to build up another mountain. Herod was an amazing architect. Herod the Great. This was his grandson. But he was also very evil. If you remember, Herod the Great is the one that slaughtered the kids in Bethlehem. Herod the Great was an evil man. He killed his sons. He was married ten times. And this guy was just a chip off the block. Herod Agrippa... Is the first is who this is. He was also the nephew of Herod Antipas who killed John the Baptist. The Herods lived for one thing. Power. That was all they cared about. Power and control. And so Herod was educated in Rome. Herod Agrippa here. And so he had Roman, he had Roman buy-in. They liked him. What he didn't have was Jewish buy-in. The Jewish buy-in was hard to get. Why? What did you have to be to be a king? He was called king by Rome, not by the Jews. He was king because Rome appointed him king. But he had to win the Jews over, so he saw a way to do it by killing James. And he killed James. They applauded that. They liked it. So he goes, now I'm going to kill the leader. If I, if I get this kind of response out of killing James... 
I'm going to kill the leader and they're really going to love me. And then I'll have Rome, I'll have Jewish buy-in, and I will be very powerful here in this part of the world. And that was what he wanted to do. But there was a problem. Passover. He did not want to have anything distract from what he wanted to do. He wanted there to be a full uh, attention on him when he was killing Peter. So he locked him up. Put him in prison. He put four squads of soldiers in there. For one guy... One guy who's really not even a fighter, although Peter did exhibit some violence in the garden when he cut the guy's ears off. But that's not why he put four guards in there. You know why he put four guards in there? Because he had already gotten out of prison once and made the Sanhedrin look embarrassed. Remember that? Earlier? When he was in jail and, and they go to get them to bring him out to the Sanhedrin and they go, they're not in jail anymore. The doors are locked and they're over there preaching in the temple. That, that spread. Herod would have heard about that. So he said, we're not taking any chances. We're going to put four squads over there. He's going to have two guards right there with him. He's going to be shackled. And he's going to be shackled to them, sleeping right there with them. He's not going anywhere without them being there. And then we're going to put a sentry outside and inside the door. And, we're going to, and they rotated them every three hours. And so Peter was in prison, but notice what it says in verse 5. Earnest prayer was made to God by the church. What happened? People were praying. Can I ask you guys, when you hear about something happening like what's happening in Canada, do you pray for the pastors up there? When you hear about people being persecuted in Africa or India, do you pray? Do we pray for these people who are... I mean, we got brothers and sisters all over the world who are being persecuted. Right. And people... I've, I have people tell me all the time, I don't know how to pray, man. I struggle to pray. I could give you laundry list of things to pray for. There's lots of things that you can intercede for. Well, I don't know how to do it the right way. It's conversing with God and, and asking God on behalf of somebody else. God, I don't even know how to verbalize this, but I know our brothers up in Canada are being persecuted right now just for preaching your word. Give them strength. By the way, there was a persecuted pastor from China who said, don't pray for our release. Pray for our faithfulness. Don't pray that we will be released from prison. Pray that we would be a faithful witness in prison. But I believe they were praying for his release here. It says he was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made by, to God by the church. Why? Because they knew what Herod was going to do. He was going to kill him. Peter knew what he was going to do. So how in the world could Peter sleep shackled to, to two guys in a prison knowing that the next day or the next couple of days he's going to die the same way James died? How could he sleep? How could he rest in that? I mean, I have a hard time sleeping just with my wife in the bed, much less shackled to two guys. And when I got something that's big on the calendar in the next day or two, something, is anything bigger than losing your life knowing if you knew you were going to be executed the next day or two? See, I don't know. I don't know that he really thought he was going to be executed. Listen back to Tremendous him. faith in God. Well, he did, but listen what God said, what Jesus said. He believed Jesus, right? Amen. 
Back in John chapter 21, it says, Jesus, remember when He said, Peter, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Take care of my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Jesus said, Peter, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, Peter wasn't old yet. He wasn't old yet. I believe that Peter trusted in what Jesus said. I believe that's why he could sleep. He didn't know how he would get out of it. He wasn't sure what was going to happen, but he knew he wasn't old. He knew Jesus has told him, when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you. Talking about he's going to die. God, Jesus told him he was going to die, but he said it's when he's old. He's not old yet. And so he rested. He rested. Why could he rest in the strength of God? with four squads of soldiers around him. Listen, there's a story in the Old Testament and there's lots I could give you. I just want to go to one. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came in to attack Hezekiah. And back in 2 Kings and Chronicles, over in Chronicles 2, he tells a story, uh, God does, about Sennacherib coming in taunting the Israelites, taunting Hezekiah. And he says this, he says, listen, all these other countries I've wiped out, they prayed to their gods. And I wiped them off the face of the map. I'm going to do the same thing with you. In 2 Chronicles or 2 Kings 19:22, he says, "Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the holy one of Israel." You see, it wasn't Hezekiah it wasn't God's people. It was God Himself. And so, a few verses later in 2 Kings 19.35, it says, And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. 185,000 people. Whoosh, gone. The angel of the Lord. Whoosh, wiped them out. God is almighty and all-powerful. And when people rose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Can you imagine that sight? I mean, they, they, 185,000 dead bodies everywhere. Who was taunting who? Who was in charge? And, as he was, and then so Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived in Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of his god Nisroch, his two sons, Adremelech and Sherazar, struck him with a sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And his other son, Esaradan, his son reigned in his place. So who had the last laugh? You see, these, these evil people may win a temporary battle. They may taunt. They may think there's something. Oh, yeah. But our faith has to rest in Him. We have to rest in Him. You know, over if you, if you flip over Psalms 120, 121, 120, all those Psalms right around there, those are called the Songs of Ascent. Every year when they would go to the uh, uh, Passover, they would sing these. I just want to read a couple of them because they're so encouraging. 
Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. You know why Peter could sleep? Because God never sleeps. Amen. God was in control. The whole time. So I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what kind of things are happening. But God is ultimately in control. Psalm 124, just a few uh, over. If If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Who broke the snare? God did. If God wants a bird to get away, He'll break the trap. If He wants you to get away, He'll let you get away. Just like with Peter. James suffered a martyr's death. Was James a a humiliation and failure for the Lord? No. No. Not in any way. Jesus said there's no greater love than to lay down your life for someone. And James willingly laid down his life for the Gospel and the King. And because of that, we're going to see next week, God completed James' race and then he had a new generation coming up in John Mark to come and be a re- not a replacement, but somebody who would keep the, the message going forward. Because that's our role, guys. And so here's the question as we go. I, one, one other verse, Romans 8.31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things. If you don't have something, because I've had people say, you know what, God never answers my prayer. I pray this and this and this, and He never answers. Because He's not going to give you something that He thinks is dangerous for you or that will lead you away from uh, Him or something that He doesn't feel fits with His plan to use you for His glory. And so if you keep praying for the same thing over and over and over and over and over again and it just ain't happening, he may not be he, he may be wanting you not to get that. Or whatever it is. It doesn't matter what it is. And so we have to ask the question, what is the biblical truth about God's power doing in my life? What impact does it have? When I leave those doors, I go out in the parking lot and I go into the world, do people see somebody that trusts in the Almighty God? Like Jehoshaphat, even when you don't know what to do. I don't know what to do, God, but my eyes are on You. You're my source of strength. You're my source of power. That's where He wants us to be. And if we're not there, He doesn't want us to wallow in guilt. He wants us to confess it, repent, and move to that place. Lord, Remember like the guy who couldn't get his son healed by the apostles? He said, Lord, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. That's what we got to say. Lord, help me to believe in Your power and not to fear. We are not to be people of fear.
So uh, let's go ahead and uh, pray. Um, Jeff, will you close our time in prayer today?